that's what we do. We do complicated things that no one else wants to do. So that that's our job. We should just add this to the list. Welcome to episode 437 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with Jennifer Hawkins, President and Executive Director of One Neighborhood Builders, a community development organization based out of Rhode Island. She joins us to talk about the Onlyville neighborhood, situated on the west side of Providence, and how significant health disparities in that community led her organization to jump into action over the summer to build a free wireless network for residents. Jennifer and Christopher talk about mapping the network, placing hardware on ONB-owned buildings, and putting up 12 access points to cover more than half of the community with robust wireless. She shares why the project's been worth it and the health outcomes they hope to achieve once it goes online. Now here's Christopher talking with Jennifer. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today, I'm speaking with Jennifer Hawkins, the President and Executive Director at One Neighborhood Builders. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to talk to you because we're we're doing more on telehealth and I think we're going to be doing a lot lot more on it as we look at how to make sure people get the benefits of the networks that they're they're building and i'm excited to talk more about providence i'm fascinated uh it's really interesting things happening across rhode island uh but but let me ask you to just start by telling me about onlyville the neighborhood that we're going to be talking about in the course of this interview great yeah it's it's wonderful to uh to be able to talk about the neighborhood and thanks for asking me on so onlyville is one of 25 neighborhoods in providence um, Providence is only a city of 190,000 people. The fact that we have 25 distinct neighborhoods is <laughs> somewhat crazy. Um, but we are um, a neighborhood of about four-tenths of a square mile. There's about 7,000 households. Um, it is a strong immigrant community. It used to be Polish and Italians, and now it's Latinx and very diverse um, within the Latinx population, um, Mexican-Americans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, Ecuadorians. It has this raw, strong sort of working class kind of ethos. Um, but it's also been a neighborhood, I think, that's always fallen on hard times and has um, been disinvested in by the city. Um, and so it unfortunately has a very high poverty rate. Um, it's about 42% poverty rate. And um, all the kind of other demographics that you would anticipate, right? There's um, about only a quarter of the population owns their own home. Um, only about a quarter of the population owns their own car. Um, and so, you know, there's uh, a lot of overcrowded housing, um, needing to carpool to work. Um, you know, what we say is essential workers is often just a euphemism for poorly paid, you know, workers. And that's often the jobs that a lot of the residents in our neighborhood have. And so, you know, Onlyville actually is um, the hardest hit area in the state for COVID-19. And even before COVID-19, I understand they already, the people that were living in the community already had a significantly lower lifespan on average than others in the area. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, not to get too jargony, but People talk about the social determinants of health, and that's, you know, the 80% um, factors that have nothing to do whether you go see your doctor or you take your medication. It's really about those things I talked about, stable, affordable housing, um, living wage employment, quality education, 
food security. So all of those um, factors are really challenged for residents in the neighborhood, which lead to an average of living eight years fewer than residents in more affluent neighborhoods of Providence. Wow. So we're going to talk about how broadband, uh, specifically free Wi-Fi access, is going to be really important to uh, bringing some equity into the area, making sure people um, are better able to address these challenges. And uh, what I find puzzling is why an organization that's called One Neighborhood Builders is 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 fo- so focused on uh, health and and focused then on on potentially Wi-Fi and how it can help. So what does your organization do? Yeah. So we do a lot and we do, we try not to do everything, but we're often pulled in a million different directions. So One Neighborhood Builders is a classical community development organization. Um, There are these, you know, entities called CDCs, Community Development Corporations, Mm -hmm. and we are one of those. We are a NeighborWorks chartered member. There's about 270 of us across the country. And so we're committed to true, genuine Um, comprehensive development and which you authentically engage residents to identify the priorities that they care about for the neighborhood. We achieve our mission foremostly through the development of affordable housing, but we recognize that, you know, we can't sort of build our way out of systemic racism and inequity, that it takes more than just addressing housing in the built environment. Um, And so we also, um, our second strategy is to address the root causes for health disparities, all this sort of stuff I've been talking about. And when you really look at that and you think, well, how do, if if we acknowledge that being able to earn a good wage, being able to obtain quality education is imperative. And because of the pandemic, when you're learning from home, hopefully working from home, trying to access healthcare from home, connect with neighbors and relatives so you're not socially isolating. If you don't have high-speed in-home internet, you are at an enormous disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was home in March, it's embarrassing to admit that I actually had that acknowledgement and that epiphany. I was like, oh my God, what if I didn't? And the fact that it took me took the the world and myself personally to have this pandemic, to recognize that Wi-Fi is no longer a convenience. It is a core social justice issue. Um, You know, that's what happened. So we decided that it is firmly within our mission statement and our mandate to address true neighborhood revitalization to address this equity issue. Now, that all makes sense to me. Um, but when I when I take what you just said with the experience that I see from other groups that I think also come to this conclusion, and then I, I, I couple that with in our discussion, you know, you made it pretty clear that that you're not the person perhaps that would be solving technical problems on the, the Wi-Fi network, <laughs> if any, develop. Why were you not intimidated away from this? I feel like I'm curious how it went that you didn't start down this path and say, you know what, this just seems too complicated. We're not, we're not going to make it. Like, was there something that allowed you to push through that challenge and, and come to the point where you're going to turn this network on in a few weeks? I guess it's maybe a little bit of, it's 
ignorance and hubris, you know, I just, um, <laughs> I think if I had known how complicated it was, I maybe wouldn't have gotten started. But then once I got down the path, I was like, nothing's going to stop me now. You know, um, I'm lucky to have um, colleagues who were able to help out when it got, I think, too technically complicated for me. But, you know, I just c- kind of thought, we're not trying to bring Wi-Fi to the entire city of Providence or nor even in the entire neighborhood of Olneville. We said, let's just focus on what we can sort of control. Mm-hmm. And that is the, the portion of the neighborhood, which is roughly half of the neighborhood, about 6 million square feet, that we said, well, we own a critical mass of buildings in this footprint of the neighborhood you know, had just been reading up. I'm like, we can just ding like lines, you know, across the buildings and create this mesh. And effectively, that is what we're doing. Obviously, it got far more complicated than that. But at its core essence, it actually isn't any more complicated than that. By virtue of the fact that we have um, ownership of properties, that the neighborhood is pretty um, densely populated, that the buildings aren't very tall, We don't also have many like concrete or brick buildings, a lot of wood frame construction. So all of those factors made for that pinging thing to happen pretty easily. But I think, yeah, I mean, what drove me and every time we sort of had a hurdle was, well, we have an obligation to think of this through and to just, you know, I feel like that's what we do. We do complicated things that no one else wants to do. <laughs> yeah. So that that's our job. We should just add this to the list, you know? That's It's great to hear. I mean, to, to give you a sense, uh, you know, to use an example that I think one of my listeners will really enjoy, um, you know, you don't have anywhere near the resources the city of Cambridge does um, in Massachusetts. Um, for a number of people in, in Cambridge, it's a major priority. And even among the city council, it's a priority. And yet... They're nowhere near as far along as you are. And and so I just wanna I wanna make that note. And you're the second person who has suggested it's a mix of of some naivete, perhaps, in terms of the <laughs> challenges. And I I think that's really important that um you know that we need to learn something from that. And and also but also it's clearly for you uh and one of those issues that um you know, you get your teeth into something and you're um you're not gonna give it up unless there's a good reason. You're not just gonna say it's too hard. Um right. so so let's what is exactly the plan? You have real estate and maybe it makes sense for you to start by just describing how that works and how you plan to set up the network using that real estate. Sure. So um, as I mentioned, you know, One Neighborhood Builders um, develops affordable housing. Um, most of that housing that we develop, we retain ownership of and lease it to, to low-income um, families. So in the Onlyville neighborhood, we own about 200 um, apartments that are are located because most of them are multifamily in about 80 buildings. Uh, we retained this company to do a heat map, which, you know, I think it was just kind of walking around with this device to see how much strength you have as you go in and out and around buildings. Um, a challenge to our heat mapping exercise is that we couldn't get into any of the properties because of the pandemic. We're obviously trying to um, not go into people's homes and, and have all that traffic. So um, we all we just had to do the heat mapping by evaluating the perimeter and the exterior kind of bandwidth. 
Um, and then we selected four locations to have a, an access point. And then I guess it was maybe three major locations and then nine other locations to have these relay devices. So a total of 12 buildings will have either the access point or a relay point. So we, the engineers, I did not do this, mapped that all out. And then we recognized, or this was something that, to your point of the naivete, I just thought I would call up um, Cox, which is our internet service provider, and be like, hi, can we just have a whole lot of, of contracts with you? But I pretty soon realized after speaking with the Cox sales rep that that was, that was crazy, but that's not how this works, um, that I needed an intermediary, that what they specialize in bringing that, um, that, that last mile, so bringing the fiber up from the street into the access, into up to a lateral. And so uh, we were introduced to Rhode Island's um, kind of intermediary. They're called Ocean. And Ocean provides that service for colleges and, um, you know, libraries, um, hospitals. Right. They were, they were a major recipient of the stimulus-supported um, um, broadband investments uh, 10 years ago. Oh, I didn't realize that that makes perfect sense. And I think so, yeah. Evidently, every state, or I believe every state, has a version of ocean because, you know, private universities um, are, are going to need that sort of intermediary. So ocean um, helped us identify, based on those 12 access points, the best location for bringing the fiber up to the street. And we, they determined that we needed two places, that one wasn't going to be adequate. Mm -hmm. It was going to stretch it too far. So we identified two locations for these quote-unquote laterals. Um, again, a, I didn't recognize that this was going to actually be like a big, big deal. We needed a <laughs> police detail and the whole thing, you know, like you've got to cut open the street. That was a le learning lesson. That ultimately is the most expensive component of this is bringing the fiber up to the street and into these laterals. I believe it. Um, absolutely. But particularly in, a, in that's such a built urban environment. Um, yes. And so now looking at all this, uh, how did you identify a way of funding all this? Uh, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't just a matter of saying, well, we'll just have to write a bigger check this year. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. So I have, am fortunate to have a, uh, a major donor who this was also a passion of his. And I was speaking to him about this and sort of challenged me and said, well, well, first he said, do you think we can do it for $100,000? I was like, oh, absolutely. We can cover the entire neighborhood with $100,000. <laughs> Again, having no idea what that meant. And then I soon realized that that was not nearly enough. And so he had already committed 100000 And so I used it as a challenge grant say, I have a major donor who's committed $100,000. We have to match it dollar for dollar to get there. Because um, it very quickly, the budget went from $100,000 to $200,000. It ultimately is going to be about $260,000 to do what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, just out of curiosity, I don't know if you have the, the funds at your fingertips, but if, if I had to guess, just because we're trying to figure some of these numbers out as we're looking at St. Paul's challenges, um, I would guess you probably have close to $100,000 of radios alone, right? Is, is that yeah. close to it? Yeah, so the exactly. the um, Those access points and the relay points were about 
75,000. Okay. Um, the installation of them are, is about 75,000. And is that largely like to an electrician for pulling power to be able to connect them? That's right. And I thought we could just use our regular old electrician, but we needed one that specialized in data too. Okay. So it was a, a, a more, yeah, specialized electrician. Yeah. As I'm rewiring parts of my home occasionally with permits, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that point where it's like, you really do notice it's a lot cheaper if you can do it yourself. <laughs> yes, it is. And we don't have the liberty of doing DIY right. at all. Right. But no, we definitely need to pull all the permits. I think there were three chunks of expenses or four, I would say. First chunk is the, um, the laterals. The second is the access points. The third is the installation of the access points. And the fourth is the, the ongoing expense. Mm -hmm. And then overlaying all that was um, a fee for the engineering uh, because we really did need someone who knew what they were doing, right? Like we needed to, to pay for that competency. Um, and we hired a company called Harbor Networks, which has been really great. Uh, long and short, with the, with the fundraising, um, we did a crowdfunding campaign we use social media, a lot of Facebook and Twitter and, um, you know, put it on our website um, saying, please contribute, like help us match this. And every time we got a sponsor, we blasted and, and celebrate it. And so we were able to achieve our goal. And then I, I also, you know, didn't just rely people on going to the website and giving. I obviously reached out to every bank and every kind of organizational partner and said, hey, you know, XYZ Bank gave twenty five hundred. Don't you think you can give that too? And and that you know really helped us get us over the line. Did do you know if the um, any of the banks took advantage or used this uh, as part of their uh, obligations under the uh, the CRA, the Community Re Revitalization Act? I'm curious. Since you raised that, um, it's it's been an ongoing issue for us. I'm guessing so. I believe they probably all did legitimize their donation by claiming CRA and credit, which it, it obviously is because this is a low, moderate income census tract. And, and so we qualify for CRA credit. Oh, okay. And and can you say roughly how many banks you had um, that joined in? I think we end up having five banks. That's wonderful. Contribute. Yeah. So the then I'm, I'm curious about the operating cost challenges. So the $260,000, and I know that you're committed to five years. Um, mm -hmm. Does that include all five years of the operating costs you're expecting to incur? No, it's the first year of operating. Um, so we sort of uh, front-loaded some of our service costs. So it's probably, there's... It's more than the first year because we did front-load some of those costs in year one. We expect the ongoing cost of those five years to be about $35,000 a year, um, which we can sort of manage, you know, um, it's not a huge number. I don't think we're going to have to fundraise for that. I think if we, we can budget for it in the beginning of the year, we can manage that price. What, what does that entail? What sort of things do you have to do with that $35,000 a year? There is, is another learning when it's, when it's down, what are we going to do, right? Mm -hmm. We needed to, a company um, who can then fix it, whether that literally means going up to a roof and seeing, well, maybe an access point is damaged. And so there's part of that ongoing cost is the warranty and service contract for our, our hardware, but then also just serve, like being able to troubleshoot and service it. You know, we, we are a tech company and we, we don't want to be able to do that. So we're paying for that service. 
and also the annual cost to ocean. That's the biggest, that's the biggest cost. Oh, that makes sense. If I'm a resident of Olney, Olneyville, um, what would I expect to get? And and do I have to, um, is it just something that will work in my home? You know, how, how will I interface with this? Um, and we're developing a frequently asked questions document now, anticipating some of those questions. But what we're anticipating is that, you know, you click on your little button in the bottom of your device that says find Wi-Fi and that Olneyville connects will pop up and then we're going to be distributing a pass key to all neighborhood residents um, that they will be able to um, enter in. When we say all neighborhood residents, we're, we're trying to define the circumference of that, that mesh, which is a little more of an art than a science. Mm-hmm. Um, we're probably going to err on the side of offering, you know, in, informing a larger number of people and saying, we're hoping that you fall under the Wi-Fi, but no guarantee that you're going to. But if you click on and it says it, here's the pass key to enter it. And we're anticipating that being sort of soft launch. And then um, after we sort of see how that goes, we're going to enter into um, a, a, a kind of this cloud portal so that when um, someone goes to enter, they will have to eventually put in their name and their address and their, their cell phone number, and then we'll text them a unique um, code. And that will allow us to actually track how many people are utilizing it, what portion of the neighborhood is utilizing it. Um, but that'll come kind of second. Initially, it's just a, a you know, blanket, here you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, we are, we're, we're saying that it's, um, you know, a, a Wi-Fi that will be able to penetrate into homes. It's not just sort of a, a Wi-Fi that you may get at a, at a public park. Um, so it really should be able to service your, your in-home needs um, and that it will be of a caliber that you can, you know, students really can learn from home and, uh, you know, adults can work from home. You know, we're not saying that 16 people can all be like making videos at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's of, of high quality. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like it's pushing to the limits of what you can do with uh, Wi-Fi today. I mean, it's, right. you know, it's not like <laughs> for as far as you've, you've gone, it's not like you're going to be able to, um, you know, uh, build a network that would rival what Verizon could do. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think I want to come back to this issue of the, the health concerns and, uh, and how do you make sure that this will lead to improved health benefits? Um, you know, from my point of view, we often get stuck on just, okay, how we make the access available, but, but your goals go beyond just making it available. And so how are you going to make sure that you get the benefits you're looking to? It's difficult um, to measure kind of individual health improvements. And we talk about population level health improvements um, to kind of circle back to that unconscionable statistic of um, the health expectancy gap or the life expectancy gap rather. We, through a variety of interventions, hope to see that residents in the neighborhood's uh, rate of chronic disease decreases, that their um, rate of inpatient hospital stays decreases. Um, but that's something that's going to be longitudinal. And, um, you know, this is one intervention among many that we are, are doing to, to try to see those population level um, increases. We do um, employ a team of community health workers that works individuals individually with residents. And 
We do know that individuals say to our community health workers, I don't have internet and my kid can't learn, or I don't have internet. And how do they expect me to register for my COVID test? Because I can only do it. Mm -hmm. So we hear that information. So we know that it's going to be impactful, but being able to track it, not going to, that's not going to happen. We're not going to be able to have that level of, of outcome information, unfortunately. Do you have any partnerships with any um, like healthcare facilities in which they're going to be trying to take advantage of what you're providing to do their own kind of studies and get a better sense of, of how they can improve their outcomes and services? We do partner with a, f- a few different um, clinical organizations like the Providence Community Health Centers and um, Integra Care New England. Um, and they are, are, are great collaborative kind of healthcare partners. They are interested in those same sort of outcomes we are, but we have yet to talk about the link between internet access and health outcomes. Um, And I think that that uh, is worth uh, exploring how we can kind of generate some data to show the link there. Yeah, I want to I want to invite you into the danger zone where I just start to come up with an idea and probably possibly misremember something that I wasn't planning on talking about. Uh, I was working with a group in um, in Baltimore that um, was um, doing a rehab of a, it's a RAD project for public housing. And in it, they had thought they were going to be able to put in a clinic that was linked to Johns Hopkins. So residents would be able to basically use telehealth from within um, within a room within this um, large, um, you know, multi-apartment building. Um, and uh, I don't think it's it's come to pass, unfortunately, but but it seems like the sort of thing that, that you would be able to do potentially where, you know, uh, maybe people could do something from the room, but perhaps there would be even, you know, a nursing assistant or someone able to to provide assistance in a room like that uh, with the assistance of a, of a healthcare provider and probably everyone would win. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is that is that something that I'm just missing, like uh, anything in particular or? I feel like the holy grail is to be able to partner with a healthcare system to develop housing that's co-located with a clinic. Um, so there's sort of a win-win. And I know of a couple really good examples. Um, uh, ProMedica did a project in Toledo and Boston Medical Center did a project in Boston. And so the Boston one I'm slightly more familiar with but it is, you know, a clinic on the ground floor and, and housing above. And I believe in that instance, it's for individuals who had experienced homelessness. So they are among the highest users of emergency medical care and inpatient care. And obviously, from a humanitarian standpoint, it is, I think, coming upon us to provide high quality, affordable housing. But also from a pure economic standpoint, those are the people who are generating the greatest costs and we want to be able to house them to reduce costs for the healthcare system. So I think that when the medical, um, the healthcare ecosystem understands that it is mutually advantageous to develop housing, um, I'm right there. I've got my hand raised. Anyone who wants to partner with me to develop <laughs> housing, I'm, I'm all for it. And we can, uh, we can do the telehealth piece too. <laughs> Excellent. So I guess the, the closing question is, um, if someone wrote you a check and told you they wanted you to do the other half of Olneyville, um, just ignore that you don't. I mean, the, what I'm asking you is if you had to do it all over again, uh, what might you do differently? What should someone else avoid doing that you had to learn the hard way? I don't know if I would do anything a whole lot differently. Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
I think that we were able to generate kind of enthusiasm um, through a, a breakthrough article that Dan McGowan wrote at the, at the Boston Globe. And I think for about three or four months, we were like, this is never going to happen. We're never going to raise money. This was so foolhardy. <laughs> and so I guess maybe that would be the one lesson learned is that generate interest early because the money starts flowing when you can generate some buzz and interest. <laughs> sure. I, know. I'm just, I think that's really important to note because one of the things I've seen in, in covering community networks is that in the years afterwards, you and you go back and you talk about it. It's hard to describe the feeling you had in the middle when you're like three months into it and you're thinking, have I just wasted all of this time for something that's not going to happen? You might have to tell this funder that I can't do it with his yes. with money. Because <laughs> you know, like, I wake up at t- in the middle of the night at times when I'm struggling with things like that where I don't know if something's going to work out. And, and so I feel like, you know, it's definitely good to, to get that message out for people who are listening to this and might be in the middle of that to say, you know, keep the faith and, uh, and hopefully you'll get there. It is true. We do, uh, as humans forget the pain, right? Like they say that if women remembered the pain of childbirth, they wouldn't have another <laughs> child. So you kind of forget the anguish of those early months. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for coming on. I, this has been um, a really good discussion. I'm really excited at the number of projects we're seeing like yours. I think you'll inspire many others to 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 move in this direction and show like that it can be done. And so um, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you. You've inspired me. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> All right. That was Christopher talking with Jennifer Hawkins. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 437 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. (laughs) ¶¶